0: It is good to see everyone here this evening. I do appreciate very much the opportunity to be with you tonight. I appreciate the things that uh, Edwin has said. I I have heard Edwin speak on a number of occasions, and uh, that's a little bit intimidating when you're asked to go and, and preach after him. He's a very good speaker. I know he's been involved in things like the Toastmasters and some of those organizations uh, over the years. I'm a little bit more of a, a Pop-Tart master uh, than a Toastmaster. Uh, don't quite have that speaking style and, and that ability, but I am glad to be here tonight to share with you a lesson about God's Word. Uh, I do wish that my family were able to be here. They are by far my, my better part. Uh, my wife Stephanie and I have been... Married now for about 16 years, and we have two daughters, uh, Hannah, who is five, and Kira, who will be three in about a week, and uh, I wish they could be here, but with us uh, having the move upcoming, uh, the girls had gone to see their grandparents, and Stephanie went to be with them for a few days as well, and unfortunately, they are in West Virginia this week and won't be able to be down here with you, Uh, but I am glad to be here and appreciate very much the topic that you've chosen for us to study this week, Uh, talking about... The Bible, I know there were a few people back home in Bowling Green that when they asked me what I was going to be talking about this week, and I said, well, I'm going to be talking about the Bible, they looked at me kind of funny because it sounds like one of those typical answers that I give when I'm asked, what are you preaching on on Sunday? Uh, what are you going to preach about on Sunday? And I'll say, well, God, sin, uh, the Bible, heaven or hell or, or love. You know, and they, that, that's just kind of a generic answer that usually isn't the actual topic that I'm discussing. That's just a way of kind of saying, well, it's going to be something based from Scriptures, but I'm not telling you the answer at this point. But this week we are going to be talking about the Bible. And I know that this is a crucial topic for us to discuss. It may not excite a lot of people when they first hear that that's what we're going to be discussing. Spending four days talking about the Bible and why we believe it. But it is so important to our faith. There's so much material that we need to cover that there's no way we're going to get it all covered in four days either. It's also one of those topics, you look at it, and I, I think on first side, I'm thinking, how am I going to expand this out and fill four class periods with that? Forty-five minutes each night. And the more that I look at it and trying to condense what I want to discuss, there's a whole bunch of areas that we're going to have to cut out because of the necessity of time. But tonight we're going to begin by considering the Bible as the most unique book. And I told Edwin already that's kind of an interesting title, The Most Unique Book. I've been told before that if something is unique, it's one of a kind. It can't be most unique or more unique or somewhat unique. It is unique or it isn't unique. Uh, I got in trouble one time for talking about something being somewhat unique, and I had to change that to say it was rare, because if it was unique, there'd only be one. But the Bible is unique in the most ways, beginning with its purpose and the effect that it has. Many of us, from the time we were children, were taught to trust the B-I-B-L-E. Now, that's the book for me, and uh, I stand alone on the Word of God, or I build my life on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. And the fact of the matter is, our faith in the Bible is critical to our faith in general. This Bible is what we build everything upon. It teaches us everything that we know about God. We argue that faith can only come from this book. And that's sometimes presented against us as a type of circular reasoning. We believe the Bible because the Bible tells us to believe the Bible. We believe what's written there because that's what we read there. And to the atheist, or the unbeliever, they say, well, that doesn't make much sense to build your argument solely on what the Bible says. And nonetheless, that's the claim that's made in the Scriptures. That's what we read in Romans, the 10th chapter, verse 17, that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. And if we're going to have faith in God, it's going to come from the Word of God. If we're going to have faith in Jesus, it comes from what Jesus said, what we read in the text. We make the statement that it's only through the Bible that we can come to know the mind of God. And that, too, is based on a biblical claim. In 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, beginning in verse 11, it says, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. Combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. That passage tells us that we couldn't know the mind of God unless God had revealed it. We didn't know what God wanted us to do, how He would describe Himself, His own character, His purpose, our purpose, His will for us, unless He had revealed it, and we're told that's what He did. That we received the mind of God in the Word that was revealed. Spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. We'll talk about that phrasing later in the week, actually, tomorrow night, when we talk about biblical claims to inspiration. And that plays a part in what we're going to be studying this week. But we believe this to be where God has revealed Himself. A number of years ago when I was preaching up in Louisville, Kentucky, I was there for a couple of years, and on Thursdays we would get together for a Bible study. I would meet with one of the elders and another one of the members there, and we studied every week. And telling the story one time, the elder told me how when he was working before he had retired, He was trying to study with someone and bring them to Christ and teach them about Christianity. And after a series of studies, that individual said, you talk about the Bible so much. He said, that Bible is actually your God. You care more about the Bible than you do about God. You don't seem to be a Christian. You're just following the Bible. And although we might object to what he was saying, there's a little bit of truth to that. One thing that we know for sure, the Bible is our only source for learning about God for learning about Jesus. The God we believe in is the God that's described in this book. The one that we serve as Lord, Jesus the Christ, the one we've given our life to, is the one that we read about in this book. The fact that Jesus lived is supported by numerous sources. There are other historians and documents that will talk about Jesus of Nazareth and what He did. But the actual events in the life of Jesus, His teachings are contained in the pages of Scripture. Luke writes in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word have handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. So you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. The exact truth, Luke says, is what He was giving us. What Jesus did, what He taught, who He is, that's given to us in the pages of Scripture. First John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. What was from the beginning, John writes, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What was from the beginning, what we've seen, what we heard, what we learned, what we experienced. That's what we're giving to you, John says. It's our source for learning about Jesus. It's our source for understanding Christianity. And beyond those historical facts, the Bible teaches us everything we know about salvation. It's unique. And that it's the only source that we can go to to learn about salvation. We place a premium on the words of Jesus. And not without reason. Jesus Himself did. In Matthew 7, verse 24, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. Hearing my words and acting upon them, you have to hear the words first. You have to understand what Jesus was teaching. In John the 12th chapter, verse 48, Jesus said, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings, as one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. And you come to understand why it's so important that we have these words. Why it's so important that we have these sayings. If that's what determines whether we're wise or not. Accepting those and acting upon them. Building our lives on those. Because we'll be judged by them. Rejecting the sayings of Christ is rejecting Christ. And in the religious world of today, how much we need to remind people of that to those who claim to be Christians and yet don't follow what He says. It's got to be built on what He says. He said that. He gave us that instruction, that pattern or that standard by which we have to live. We believe the Word saves us because the Word says it does. In James chapter 1 and verse 21, James instructs us to put aside all filthiness And all that remains of wickedness and in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your soul. And so when someone says that that word is your God, well, it's not our God, but it's given by God. And it's the tool that God uses to transform us, to change us, to teach us, to bring us to Him. It's not a coincidence that Jesus is referred to in the beginning as being the word, the word that was with God, the word that was God. The Word that became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld Him. The Word that saved us. Yes, I know that's not talking about this physical Scripture, this Bible. But Jesus was a manifestation of that Word. That It is so important and vital to our life and our understanding of God. And that the Bible is all sufficient. We read many occasions, Second Timothy chapter 3. Verse 16 and 17, where Paul wrote to Timothy and said, All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Some translations say that he may be perfect, full, no matter what translation you're reading from. The idea that's conveyed there is that the man of God may know everything he needs to know. He's able to do everything that He needs to do, it's in this book, it's in the Scriptures that are given to us to make us who we're supposed to be. Second Peter 1 and verse 3, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. And again, it's that idea of the all-sufficiency of the scriptures. Everything that pertains to life and godliness. We have presented before us. So important that we read it, that we study it, that we understand it. It makes the Bible unique in what it can do for us. But it also puts us in what some might consider a difficult position. We put so much trust in the Bible that if we are wrong, we are in trouble. We are in a perilous position. Because in reality, all of our hope, all of our trust, all of our faith, well, we say it's placed in God. It's placed in what we know about God from this book. We say it's placed in Christ, but it's based on what we're told about Christ in this book. It's placed in the Bible in reality. Without this book, we could know that there was a God but we wouldn't really know anything about His character, about how He wanted us to live. We'd know something about His attributes. We'd see His divine power and His glory. We can understand that through the creation and what was made. The Scriptures teach us that. We'd know there's a God, but we wouldn't really know about His love. We wouldn't know about His justice, His mercy, His grace. All those defining characteristics of God. We certainly wouldn't know anything about Christ without this book. We don't understand anything about the redemption story and the salvation that God offers to man. We reject other methods of knowing God as unreliable at best. The ones who just seek to find God on their own, that just spends time meditating and praying or climbs a mountain somewhere and, and sits and tries to come in contact with God in some other way. We say, that doesn't work. You don't find God that way. You can only find Him through the pages of the Scripture. But do you realize how many accusations are made against the Bible? We accept it as being true. Many of us, if we're brought up by Christian parents, I was not. I didn't learn some of those things growing up. But thankfully, many of you as Christians, you're bringing up your children to know these things from their youth and from their birth. And and many of them are just taught to accept it and believe it and never question it at all. But there are many who claim the Bible is not reliable. There are those who say that it's been corrupted. Jehovah's Witnesses teach that. As an organization, that the Catholic Church corrupted the Bible. And during all those years when Catholicism kind of had a stranglehold on the religious world, that they manipulated the text and they made it say what they wanted it to say. And what you hold in your hands tonight is not what God delivered, but what the Pope decided you could have. The Mormons say that part of it is missing. That it's not complete. That there was more revelation that somewhere along the line fell out of the Bible. That it needs to be supplemented by the Book of Mormon or other writings. That the Gospel that Paul preached is not what you find in the book that sits before you. The Catholics claim that they have the only reliable Bible. The Bible can only be understood by the interpretation that's given by that organization, that church. No one else can interpret it. No one else can translate it. The Muslims claim that the Jews and the Christians twisted it and perverted it. The Bible originally said something else. The Jews took it manipulated it to reflect their point of view. The Christians kind of built on that as well. Muslims believe in the same God. They believe in some of the same stories. We're becoming a little bit more familiar with Islam in recent years because of the conflicts in the world and the growth of Islam in this nation. And it might surprise some people to go back and read about Adam and Noah and Abraham in the Quran. That they have those same accounts, but they have radically different endings to them. They have different implications. They say it's been twisted. What we hold as the Bible is not what God delivered. Atheists denounce it. Is either fraudulent, a leftover relic from a primitive era of human superstition, supernaturalism. In reality, those accusations raise some serious questions concerning the Bible. The fact that so many question it and level all of these charges against it, I think would make us have to think a little bit about what we believe and if there's any truth behind what's being said here and what we're talking about this week is how sure you are regarding the trustworthiness of the Bible. Is there any evidence to support its claims or do we just have to accept it by faith? That's what some will say. Well, you either believe it or you don't. You read it and you accept it or you don't. If it's a blind faith in that respect, are we no better off than any of the other religions out there? That we accept this book as coming from God the same way that A Muslim accepts the Koran? Or someone else accepts their writings that it was given by God and so they believe it and there's nothing to support it? Is that where we stand? Obviously, I don't believe that. I believe there's abundant evidence for the inspiration, the preservation, the accuracy, the reliability, the trustworthiness, the infallibility of God's Word, the Scriptures, the Bible, which is what we're studying this week why we're looking at these things to understand what we have and what we're supposed to do with it. It is a bit of an unusual study that we're undertaking this week because more than just studying the Bible, we're studying about the Bible. We're studying kind of the the evidence and the support that holds it up. Our confidence in the Bible. And part of our confidence in the Bible comes from the fact that it is unique. That has been presented to us in this way. That it's unique in its continuity. or its unity, its harmony. That's something that stands out in the Bible. That it has this one continuous message. And while you might think that every book should present one message, when you consider the way in which the Bible is composed, it's remarkable. It's a piece of evidence to support the claim that it's divine in its origin and it truly is the Word of God because the Bible was not written as one book. In fact, that's one of those things that sometimes has gotten involved in discussions and I think we need to be very careful that we use Bible words and we describe Bible things in Bible ways and we use biblical terms and yet when you turn around to someone and say, but you know, Bible is not a biblical term. It kind of throws them for a loop. Talking about Bible things in Bible ways, and yet the Bible never calls itself a Bible. The Bible is a made up word that we attribute to it later. It comes from the Greek word for book, but that's not how the Bible ever identified itself. It's not called the Bible. It's called the Scriptures, which was a collection of writings. All of these scriptures that were given to us, maybe we'd be a little bit better off if we thought of it in that way, to understand where it came from the composition of 66 different books or writings. which is unique. Now, there are other compilations of writings written by various authors, but nothing quite like the Bible. 66 different writings written over a period of 1,600 years. And I know you've heard some of these facts rattled off before, but think about how significant that is. But over 40 generations It was continuing to be put together. They were continuing to add on to it. There were other authors who were inspired by God, moved by the Holy Spirit, who wrote another part to what God revealed. Written by approximately 40 different authors that came from virtually every walk of life. Peasants, kings, fishermen, herdsmen, doctors. Tax collectors, cupbearers, about anything you could think of. From the wealthy and the powerful and the educated to the lowliest servant God used to reveal His Word. It was written from different places in the wilderness or from palaces or from prisons or on the road during different times. From times of great peace to times of intense warfare. Different situations in the history of God's people. When they were a nation and growing and prosperous, or when they were in captivity and conquered by the nations around them. When they were looking forward to things happening, or looking back upon them after the fact. It was written in different moods. Joy and sorrow, compassion, fear, anger, all reflected in these writings written on three different continents. Asia and Africa and Europe. It was written in three different languages. We usually just mention the Hebrew for the Old Testament and the Greek for the New Testament, but portions of the Old Testament were also written in Aramaic. A third language that's in the mix in the original composition of these works. And what stands out more is the fact that it addresses hundreds of controversial subjects. It contains some of the most difficult subject matter on the most controversial subjects that one could imagine. The origin of man. The nature of God. The purpose and restrictions and intent of marriage. What righteousness is. Morality. Love. Anger. Justice. Judgment. Law. Faith. Works sin, redemption. You think about the topics that are covered in the Scripture. The Bible contains matters of history, matters of law, civil law, criminal law, ethical law, ritual law, sanitary law. It has works of poetry. It has treatises or teachings on different things. It has parables and allegories and biographies and personal correspondence and memoirs and diaries and prophecies. And with all of that background and all of these different writings, and all of these different eras and from different approaches and different styles and different languages, there's no con- contradictions in anything that's been revealed. That's amazing. No contradiction. Nothing that as a fact can be pointed to where the Bible ever contradicts itself. Are there difficult passages? Absolutely. There are difficulties. You can find some of those on your own. You can go out there and buy books that are written about other ones. But you know, even with all those difficulties, there's not one place where you can say absolutely positively these two passages contradict each other. There's always explanations that are reasonable, sometimes hard to get to, but are reasonable explanations where it can never be proven that it contradicts itself. That's amazing. What's more, the Bible contains one united theme that binds it all together. We see the glory of God as it's revealed in His plan of salvation. We see a thread that runs from the very beginning to the very end and through every single book and every writing that's there. If you've never seen that, go back again and give attention to some reading and see what you find even in books like Judges and Job and places where maybe you didn't see the salvation that would come through Christ. And yet I think in a closer read you'll find it there. Books like Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and all of the prophets. The paradise lost of Genesis becomes a paradise regained of Revelation. The tree of life that was there at the beginning is there at the end. The gate that was closed is open forevermore in Revelation. And when you compare the continuity of the Bible, to any writing of man. You see a stark difference. If we were to take just ten authors from one walk of life, one generation, one place, one time, one mood, one continent, one language, speaking on one controversial subject, we'd still get divergent views. Take ten preachers who are educated at the same school and preach in the same state and are about the same age, and ask them to write something about marriage and see how closely it's related to each other. different views, different approaches that are there. And yet in the Bible, we don't find that. We find consistently. Whether it's from the Jewish Old Testament, the Christian New Testament, Whatever time period, it's consistent throughout that. And all of that forms a very strong argument for the inspiration of the Bible, which we will discuss in more detail tomorrow evening, if the Lord wills. I hope you'll come back for that. When we talk more about inspiration, but kind of giving some of that away, I think this is one of the stronger arguments for inspiration, just from what's revealed there. But the Bible is also unique when it comes to its preservation. For its survival. And this really relates to its authenticity. Simply stated, when we talk about this this evening, it, it relates to the copies of the Bible that we have in our possession, whether or not they're accurate copies. I told you some of the accusations that are made against the Bible is that it's been corrupted, that there are parts missing, that it's been changed in some way. And we're able to kind of deal with that issue, or the reason that that discussion even comes up is that the fact of the matter is we don't have the autographs of these books. When we talk about autographs in this situation, that doesn't necessarily mean somebody signed it. That means the original that was penned by Paul or Luke or John or whoever it was that God moved, the Holy Spirit moved to reveal these things. Nowhere in existence to our knowledge do we have that original document. That original letter that Paul penned or someone else penned or a scribe wrote for him. Or the books that Moses wrote down. What we have are manuscript copies of that. Manuscripts because they were copied by hand. That someone else took it and and copying off of it, they made a copy of it and they passed it on. And anyone who's ever played the little game of operator and whispering something in someone's ear and going around the table, you, you know that there can be errors in that. The question becomes, how can we know that our copies are accurate? How can we be sure that there have not been significant changes Or errors made in these copies? How can we be sure there hasn't been collusion among those who had the copies? That the church at Rome wasn't able to in some way get all of the copies and make them read the way they wanted them to read. People assume that that was possible. 2,000 years after the fact, it seems like that would be pretty easy to have happened. To have some errors made and have some changes among them. But scholars investigate that. The way they investigate it with any ancient works, the Bible is not unique in survival insofar as it's an ancient work that's been preserved to today. There are other ancient works that have been preserved. And scholars ask a series of questions such as, how many copies do we have? So we can compare the copies that exist and and see whether we think we have an accurate copy. Where were they found? That deals with collusion. If, If you have a few copies and they were all found in the same place, how do you know that they weren't all manipulated? to be there. How much later are these copies? How much time has passed from when the original was written and when this copy was made? How many variances do we find? Differences between the copies? If you have three or four handwritten copies, you'd expect that there might be a few things that were different among the copies. That scribes might have made some mistakes in copying those texts. And that test has been used to prove many ancients writings. That when scholars look at works such as the Annals of Tacitus, that they believe that we have accurate copies of those annals, those histories, and yet that's based on two manuscripts that they've unearthed that are about 950 years after the time that Tacitus wrote those manuscripts. And yet they're significantly alike to one another. There's a few minor differences that scholars look back and they say, we have what was truly written by Tacitus. It's authentic. It's real. Caesar's Gallic War, based on ten manuscripts that we've unearthed so far, in about 950 years after the time when Caesar would have written it. That's the oldest one, and many of these manuscripts are not preserved that long, because papyrus and the different materials that they were written on, it just kind of disintegrates and it falls apart. And unless someone took extraordinary care to preserve it, it's not going to last very long. Most of our books don't last that long. 950 years after it first was written. Plato is based on seven manuscripts that we have of his writings. Livy's History of Rome is based on 20 manuscripts that date about 350 years after it was originally written. The history of Herodotus, the closest manuscript we have to him is 1,350 years after the original. And yet no legitimate scholar questions the authenticity of these works or seriously questions the accuracy of the copies that we have. They look at these and they say, yes, what we have is what they originally wrote. I want you to understand that. Because when we look at the New Testament especially, there's quite a difference. In comparison, the New Testament has far more evidence to support it than the two manuscripts or ten manuscripts or seven or twenty that we might read about these other ancient writings. The manuscript evidence is overwhelming. That to date, over 5,000 manuscripts of the Greek New Testament have been unearthed. As archaeologists continue to dig up different things and make discoveries, they find more all the time but over 5,000 handwritten copies of our New Testament are in existence today. Manuscripts that contain at least one whole book. Over 13,000 portions of the Greek New Testament. Fragments and parts where some of it disintegrated and is no longer legible, and yet we can still read what was there and part of it. Over 13,000 of those. In addition, there's over 1,000 Manuscripts in Syriac, Coptic, Armenian, Gothic, and Ethiopic. Other ancient languages that it was translated into, yet those are still those handwritten copies, over a thousand of those. Why is that valuable? You can compare the meaning. The translation to what we were given in the original. Some 8,000 manuscripts in Latin, that's 9,000 other language manuscripts. That's a total of over 27,000 manuscripts compared to two or seven or twenty. That number is almost so overwhelming, it loses its effect. How much evidence we've been given to support this. When we talk about these time periods, like 350 years, or 950 years, or 1,350 years, how does the New Testament relate to that? Well, the earliest fragments of the New Testament date to within about 50 years of when they were written. The early 2nd century. 120, 125 A.D., piece of the Gospel of John, a fragment of it. But it's there, that close to when the original was written. We have several nearly complete New Testament manuscripts that date within 300 to 400 years of the original. Codex, Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, and Vaticanus. Nearly complete New Testament. Just a few little pieces missing here and there because they disintegrated. They weren't preserved. But within 300 or 400 years. Scattered throughout the ancient world from Italy to Palestine to Egypt to Ethiopia. Not in one area. It would be impossible for somebody to make all these copies read the same. And when you consider the variances, the evidence is amazing as well. For 27,000 manuscripts, do you think you find some errors in the copying process? Yes, you do. 27,000 times. Somebody by hand read this one and wrote it down on that one. I try to copy one letter and I make some mistakes in it. There are some errors, but not as many as you would think. The vast majority are minor differences in spelling or phraseology. Instead of Jesus Christ, it says Christ Jesus. Or they spell it a different way on one manuscript than they did on another. Only about one-half of one percent of the New Testament. There's some legitimate question as to what the original reading was. Point 05 percent. One-half of one percent of the New Testament. That's about three pages in your Bible. And even then, there's no doctrinal question that rests on these passages alone. There's not a single issue or teaching of Christianity that rests on a variant reading. It's all been confirmed somewhere else. Maybe it didn't say that in one book, but it says it in this other book where there's no question about it. We know what the New Testament said. And what a test for that fact is that those who received it believed it to be inspired. They were very careful in copying it and preserving it. The fact that you have 27,000 manuscripts that we found, we'll talk a little bit about archaeology Wednesday night, Lord willing. I'm going to share with you how little we have unearthed of what's out there. And we found 27,000 manuscripts. They intended it to be circulated. They intended to pass this around as much as possible. We've read on other occasions, Colossians 4, verse 16, in our studies where Paul wrote to the Colossian church and said, when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. And I'm not going to talk to you tonight about a letter to Laodiceans. Because personally, I don't think that exists. What I think Paul was saying is when you receive this Colossian letter and you read it, and you send it on to this other church, there's another letter coming through them to you. Not necessarily that Paul wrote to the Laodiceans, and we can talk more about that after. Not study tonight if you want to. But if you look at a map, you know what city is exactly on the other side of Laodicea? Ephesus. The Ephesian letter was written about the same time, and I think it's very likely that Colossians was being passed through Laodicea to Ephesus, and Ephesians was coming its way through Laodicea back to Colossae. Because that's what they did. They copied it and they circulated it like the seven letters of Revelation, like the letter to the Corinthians, especially the first letter. You know, First Corinthians, as personal as it is and as many problems as are in it, was the most widely circulated letter of all the New Testament letters. Copies of First Corinthians are found in Egypt. Copies of First Corinthians are found all over the ancient world. If I was a Corinthian church, I wouldn't want anybody else to know about the problems that we were having with immorality and with misunderstanding, all of these things. But they copied it, and they passed it around because they believed it to be the Word of God. And it was unique in that respect. When we talk about the Old Testament and those manuscripts, they're a little bit harder to find. Granted, that goes back a little bit further, but the evidence is still overwhelming. We do have many manuscripts and translations of the Old Testament. There's a ton of them. The Septuagint translation, oftentimes it's represented there with an LXX for the 70 70 scribes who translated the Old Testament Scriptures from Hebrew into Greek. That was compiled about a century or two B.C. Gives us an accurate copy of how they understood the Old Testament Scriptures from those couple centuries before Christ. But before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, The oldest copy we had of the Old Testament was the Masoretic text, which dated to about 900 A.D. Copies that were made by the Masoretes, these were scribes, Jewish scribes who committed their life to preserving the Old Testament scriptures. It's kind of surprising. We found New Testament fragments that dated back to the 2nd century, but the Old Testament, we didn't have anything older than 900 A.D. Until the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. In 1947 when they were discovered there near the Dead Sea, there was a lot of hype about this. Because they're by far the oldest that we'd ever found. Copies of the Old Testament in Hebrew, manuscripts dating to the 2nd century B.C., nearly 1,100 years older than the oldest copies we had. When they were first discovered, scholars were so excited about it because what they thought was going to happen is it was going to prove all the mistakes that had been passed down in 1,100 years. That what they would find in the Dead Sea Scrolls was a different Old Testament than what we had. There was this flurry of activity. We need to get these published. We we need to get it out there to the people so they can see how the scribes made all these mistakes. We don't read much about the Dead Sea Scrolls anymore. Kind of faded away. Because what they found were the copies were accurate. Complete text of Isaiah. Complete text of other parts of the Old Testament. And what they found that dated 1,100 years earlier than the Masoretic text read exactly the same way as the text we have from 900 A.D. Phenomenal. Because he scribes, care cared very greatly about what they believed to be the Word of God. Depending on your point of view, God preserved it very carefully. He allowed this evidence to be there so that we know that we now have accurate copies. Of what was revealed. The questions we have left this week can focus on the text itself. Because the text that we have is the text that was given. We can look at the internal evidence, we can look at other external evidence, but no one can seriously question that this is authentic. This is what was delivered. They might question whether it's truly from God or not, but they can't say, How do you know that wasn't changed? Because the evidence for it not being changed. Is overwhelming. No other book has been persecuted, banned, outlawed, and burned like the Bible has. It's unique in that respect. No other book has been chopped up, sifted, and scrutinized like the Bible has. And yet it's still loved, read, and studied more than any other book. It has withstood the test of time and everything that the critics, have leveled against it. And that's a strong support for the idea that this work came from God. Now, like I've said, we'll talk a little bit more the rest of the week about the Bible. That doesn't settle all the questions. We'll talk about the claims to inspiration. We'll talk about the questions of biblical accuracy. We'll talk about those individuals who delivered this message to us and how much they believed in it, even giving their lives. And I hope it will build some faith in this book that leads you to do what it says. To listen to the words of Jesus, to receive the word implanted that's able to save your souls. Appreciate your attention tonight in this study. Hope you'll come back the rest of the week.